Hello, my friends, and welcome to the 90th episode of Patterson in Pursuit. This week, I'm talking with Mr. Jeffrey Tucker about capitalism and free markets in the big picture. So Jeff's an interesting fella. He's been a longtime libertarian. He writes a lot of articles about the beauty of capitalism and talks about the beauty and almost the goodness in free markets and voluntary exchanges. And so I wanted to bring him on the show to talk about his bigger picture philosophy. Libertarians in general, when they discover the power of markets and economic thinking, it kind of sucks you down a rabbit hole. And it's very clear that markets create wealth. But a more fundamental question that not as many libertarians address is, why is wealth creation important? Why is it a big deal? Is it an ethical presupposition that we have that most people just assume is shared? Uh, is it well-founded? Is it not founded? In this conversation, we even bump into ideas about the meaning and value of human life, the breathtaking beauty of tuna fish. <laughs> And a question that I'd like to hear more libertarians talk about, which is, you know, we claim that extraordinary uh, harmonious coordination of human action takes place in the absence of any central planning that kind of leave people alone with very limited framework for their behavior, you know, don't hurt each other, don't steal each other's stuff. And then out of that system, you get incredible wealth creation, which is what we talk about. But why is it the case that the system is structured in that way? Isn't it amazing, even shocking, to think that we get such incredible results through the absence of central planning? This is a point that other thinkers like Leonard Reed, for example, have said is almost has a spiritual quality to it. There's almost some, you're almost getting at some like mysticism when you see the power and beauty of what happens in marketplaces. It's a really interesting question, and so we're talking about that as well. Jeff is the editorial director for the American Institute for Economic Research. He is the CEO of the Atlanta Bitcoin Embassy. He's the author of eight books and literally thousands of articles, many of which you can see online over the period of a career of many decades. So I really hope you guys enjoy our conversation. Mr. Jeffrey Tucker, welcome to Patterson in Pursuit. I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today. Hey, it's my pleasure. It's good to be here. Thank you for inviting me, Stephen. It's nice to see you, old friend. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, my wife and I, Julia, are old Atlanta residents, and we were just about leaving when you were moving to the city. So we're getting we're getting the Atlanta feels. I think it, eventually we're going to move back there. It's such a nice place. Are you really? You know, people do feel whenever whenever I travel internationally or really domestically anywhere, I always look forward to coming back to Atlanta and. And a new type of happiness floods over me when I fly into town. I tell you, it, it was the first place we moved after we left upstate New York, which is a horrible place to live. And we thought, maybe we just love Atlanta so much because of the contrast. Like, maybe it's not the city. Maybe it's just that it's not upstate New York. But no, we've been all over the place, and there's something special about that city. And the people I, there, too. Well, you know, it's a very wealthy population and a hugely diverse population. And... I like the city because it puts a lie to all, all the political claims for the last 100 years, you know. <laughs> this group can't get along with that group, that group right. can't get along with this group. We need to have government planning to force everybody to, to shape up or to help the poor or to redesign the neighborhoods to keep people apart and blah, 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 blah. And then you come to Atlanta and like, what? It's just not true. <laughs> yeah. I mean, all, all the all the experiments in government planning have completely ended here. You know, you think about it. It, it goes back, uh, uh, really, 150 years or 200 years uh, here in Atlanta. But and the city kept being destroyed and then restarted again. But every time it restarted, it have some new scheme, whether it was, uh, you know, Jim Crow laws or, 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 or busing or urban renewal or just some some incredible garbage. And then sometime in the early 2000s, it's like the city just kind of ran out of money and ran out of ideas. <laughs> and it was the best thing that ever happened. So now, now it's just as cl close as you can come to kind of a uh, government gives up sort of city. And, and as a result, there's gigantic prosperity. So and this is actually something I want to talk to you about in a little more detail here. So you're, I'd say it's fair to say you're known for being a pretty big proponent of capitalism. Is that fair? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess so. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so um, I've heard you say things like, you know, 
capitalism is life. Capitalism yeah. is love. Some of these big, these big claims, and they sound very nice and they're very uplifting. But I want to explore them. I want to explore what you, what you mean, and and how important your views about capitalism and freedom are in kind of your in the big picture philosophy of Jeff Tucker. Okay. Okay. So. <clears throat> Usually when libertarians talk, we appeal to economics at some point. We say, look, if you have markets here, you're going to result, it's going to result in more wealth and more human flourishing. And that's very persuasive. It was for me. Pretty much all libertarians I know talk about the importance of markets. But there's, a, there's an assumption here that everybody is going to value economic development, that everybody's going to value wealth creation. Um, so my first question is, is that a fair assumption to make? And if so, why? Why is it that you think wealth creation is something important for humans in the first place? Uh, well, uh, okay, a number of points about that. Um, I think it's, it is a universal that people want to live a better life than they currently do. And I don't think there's any exception to that. You know, there's always things that we want that we can't get. That's the reason we wake up in the morning. That's the reason we act. That's the reason we move. That's why we do everything we do, mm. is to is to live live a better life. I liked uh, Mises's book Human Action. His original title for that was called Man in Search of a Better Life. Hmm. And and I think that's a. I mean, I'm glad it's finally called Human Action. It's an awesome title. But I, I do like that description, a Man in Search of a Better Life, because I think it that is a universally unites everybody. Uh, on the point about wealth creation, that you know, it, that's that's a difficult subject because because essentially you could describe economics as it emerged in the 18th century as the science of that that sought to explain where wealth comes from, and and the whole subject of the creation of wealth is a little bit opaque and kind of difficult. It eluded the ancient philosophers. There's this funny passage in Aristotle, and I, I think it may be in in his book on ethics that. He's, he addresses the, the question about how to get wealthy, and he just has a passing remark: "There's only so much wealth in the world, uh, and, and no more, and, it's, and, and no more new wealth can be created." So it stands to reason that if you want wealth, then you have to get it from somebody else, right. and that can happen in a number of ways. I mean, basically, war or pillaging or you know just robbery or something, and and that was the assumption for for most all of human history, just based on. On looking around, it didn't seem like any there wasn't a, such a thing as wealth being created. And by the 18th century, it became really obvious that wait, there is wealth being created. The classes are, are shifting around. People uh, are developing the ability. They are making choices to leave the countryside to move to the city, so they can so they can get more money. And then they're getting money, and money was awesome because then you could spend it on what you wanted, and you weren't just working for security and and uh, organic vegetables. You know, scratching around the dirt. Suddenly, you actually got, you got paid in money. You can make choices, and there were choices to make. So you could go down to the harbor and buy fish, and you know, and then you could actually invest it and actually save money. And then, you know, the the exciting prospect that your children might live a better life than you, and they could actually shift social classes. I mean, you could you could start poor and actually ascend up the social ladder. You could start dressing like the nobles. And eating like the nobles, and uh, and marrying into noble families, and you know, I, so yeah, that was a that was a dramatic and mysterious change. And and one of the things that's beautiful about Adam Smith's book, uh, The Wealth of Nations, is that he really does seek to to explain like where's this weird stuff called wealth come from, and it's it's a hugely important topic because when we talk about wealth, you're not just talking about like money in the bank. You're talking about whether or not you're going to die young whether your children are going to live past the age of two, you know, wh whether or not you're going to uh, uh, experience immense pain or, or whether you're going to have hope itself, you know, whether, whether life can be good or do we have to forever wait to the afterlife uh, for, for goodness and prosperity? You know, that was a, a huge shift in, in the history of humankind. And, um, uh, you know, there's this, this essay by Benjamin Constant, written in the early 18th century, French philosopher, called The Difference Between Liberty in the Ancient World and the Modern World. 
and and he really does discern that there's a difference in the in the term liberty. Like in, in the ancient world, the term liberty meant that you were you were free, which is to say you're a free man, meaning that you could participate in the public life of the nation in some way. That you were consulted and you were a stakeholder in the structure of, of government, essentially. And that's what it meant to be free. And that's all it meant to be free until suddenly you get into the modern world, which is probably uh, the, the late 15th century, early 16th century. Um, you started to see in the end of feudalism and the move to the cities and, and this aspiration for a new kind of life. And, and the notion of liberty took on a different, a different possibility. It, 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 people began to imagine for the very first time there could be a universal condition that, that is something everybody could be free. And what did that freedom consist of primarily, according to Benjamin Constant? This new invention, participation in commercial life. So, so commerce and liberty became like bound up with each other. And that, that was a dawning of a new conception of what, what life and freedom really were. One of the things that's actually frustrating for people that are conservatives and people who just want to forever look back in history and discover what it is that we should be thinking that sometimes go to Aristotle and Plato and the, and the uh, uh, you know, whatever ancient philosophers and Stoic tradition or, or ancient religions or whatever. The problem with all these perspectives is that they overlook this fundamental point. I mean, wealth didn't really dawn in the world until the early 16th century. This would became obvious. I mean, the, the, the plagues were over, uh, you could move, and you could aspire for a good life for your children who could actually, you have hope that they could actually live, and there could be such a thing as progress. And, and so, of course, there wasn't really anything to study concerning economics in the ancient world. And, and this idea of wealth creation, it just, it just wasn't on the map. So when you are looking at this big picture, the argument, I think, is pretty straightforward. You're saying... The desire for a better life is universal. The way to get a better life is to have the means available to make decisions that you think will improve your life. And the way to increase those means available is to have markets, is to essentially have capitalism, and that's where we get wealth creation, and that's why yeah, it's there's, important. There's a number of stages, and, and here we get into something really mysterious. Like, why did it happen in the, in the 16th century? Why did why why do you look at the demo, huge demographic changes in the 18th and 19th century? You know, why did life change fundamentally? And people have different answers to this. You know, is it the invention of markets? Markets really weren't invented by anybody. Free markets aren't really a policy. Capitalism is not something that was really imposed by government. It's something that emerged out of human action. So there's a number of conditions that have to be in place. I mean, pr private property, obviously. Um, but that probably was invented something like a hundred thousand years ago, as far as anthropologists know. Uh, it had to be invented because of the tragedy of the commons. I mean, unless you could, you, unless you could uh, rope off a, 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 a space of land and say, "This is mine. Please stay out. Don't steal my stuff." You couldn't really grow crops in a single season, much less have animal husbandry and. And uh, you wouldn't you wouldn't have the ability to 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 make things without private property. Then you had this other very important issue of documenting the existence of the private property, and and in a compelling way that that uh, that people would acknowledge. You know that that society, such as it was, could could look at you and say, okay, I recognize your your documentation as being legitimate. Which is why blockchain is so important, by the right. way. But anyway, that's that's going, that's going way forward in history. <laughs> But we've always been uh, clamoring for a way to document private property so we could we could make the world more uh, pe peaceful place. But why then? I mean, there's so many theories about this. You know, I, I think I think um, I think Adam Smith's answer is actually interesting. It's it's weirdly boring. You know, like what what was his reason for why wealth for for how we get wealth? I mean, his answer it comes in like chapter two or something like that. It's called the division of labor, and and that's that's a weirdly boring, nerdy answer to the question: Where does wealth come from? <laughs> it just it just means that we we learn how to cooperate more with people, and and how to learn to trust others. So the goat farmer uh, raises goats more than he needs to consume because he believes the blueberry farmer next door is going to 
uh, raise more blueberries than he needs for consumption. They can actually trade, so they've already divided labor. And then, and then the goat farm actually starts adding employees, you know, whether for security or feeding or whatever. And so we, we just learn to find, to extract value from other people, you know, around us, and and to trust them to to provide that, in in a in a way in which you know is is reliable and cooperative and, and peaceful, and that that gradually expands and expands, and then then it becomes exponential, and then suddenly you look around and it's like, wow, we're actually making wealth. We're making tons of wealth, and it's changing the world. Not everybody likes it, but we're going to change the world. It's great. So there's there's a lot of. Uh thinkers, I fall into this trap all the time, who have very hard lines between moral claims, philosophic claims, and let's say economic claims, political claims. But when you step back and look at your own belief system, do these all merge together? I mean, how, how important is morality and what you're talking about this because it, it sounds oh. like you're kind of blending together even some fundamental moral principles about trust and about you know the desire to have humans be able to satisfy their own ends like that is itself a kind of good and that that's not very fry right that well, markets markets are absolutely fascinating because they do bring people together in ways that they would otherwise never have gotten together like uh and you can experience this. I mean, you're just in any big city and you go to a Thai restaurant and the waiter comes up and you just say, hey, where are you from? It's like, you're going to get an amazing story. And uh, just the opportunity to serve and be served it provides an opportunity for a human encounter that wouldn't, uh, wouldn't occur absent uh, markets. I think absent markets, you end up sort of staying in your own tribe and not discovering you know, the universal dignity of, of the human person. Yeah. And so markets like are constantly making these friendly, beautiful encounters of, available to you, just boom, 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 just one after another. And, and it's so exciting, whether you're meeting in person or, or online, uh, markets do help you discover value in other people. And if you play with markets, and it's not a surprise that, that the result of kind of intervening in markets is, is to cause the reverse to happen. It causes you to, to undervalue and, and devalue people, and it causes social division rather than cooperation. You can look at it, you know, in every sector of life. I mean, we, we keep people apart by, by force um, and prevent, prevent trades uh, and force intermediaries on people, then human relationships break down too. So, yeah, mm. I think that's all part of the same thing. Uh, by the way, I got fascinated with, you know, I think back at it. I got fascinated by economics when I was in college, but everything in the economics textbooks was sort of clinical, and you know it was these uh, these flow mechanisms and, and various Keynesian hydraulics and big aggregates, and that yeah, you know, I was interested in them, but they didn't seem very human. And then uh, and then I read a history of the Weimar Republic, and I was like, well, okay, this is where economics becomes real. You know, suddenly you have the, all of society going into upheaval and uh, uh, people losing vast fortunes and and you know terrible things. People turning on each other and then eventually electing a dictator to power and so on. And it was that book that made me realize, wow, economics is way more interesting mm -hmm. than appeared in, in the McConnell Econ 101 text. Mm -hmm. This is really about about human life itself, which is why I was drawn to you know, the Austrian tradition, yeah, Hayek and, and Mises and so on. So I read an article the other day from, I think it was Scott Alexander, who runs the Slate Star Codex blog. And he's, uh, he's flirts with libertarian ideas now and then. He's a really, uh, he's very much of the rationalistic mentality. And he asked a, a really good question that it, it kind of it almost gets into metaphysics with markets. And he asked it from a, from a perspective that was totally genuine and like outside the radical market anarchist perspective. And, and he was talking, it was an article about anarcho-capitalism, this idea that we have just pure markets and everything. And he said, the question I want answered is, why should this system work? And what he, what he specified is, how is it possible that such an elegant and beautiful and harmonious system could possibly emerge in the absence of control over it, in the absence of like a monopoly of rules of the game. And, and I think what he was getting at is this, these ideas are so beautiful. If this were true, you need some kind of metaphysical explanation. Like, is this the hand of God well, that you we're know, seeing? But, oh. Right. Remember. 
so, uh, so he was okay, saying that's so, why he's a little skeptical of the extreme right. anarcho-capitalism because it seems too much. It seems like too beautiful. Well, I, I, I kind of agree with that. It's actually difficult sometimes. And I, I, I'm constantly amazed. I mean, I wrote, a, I wrote an article the other day. And I, I sometimes I get overwhelmed by my life. But I, I, was, I was, well, here's what happened. I was in San Diego and I was kind of getting the munchies. And I was kind of hungry, so I went up to the front desk and I said, do you guys got anything to eat around here? She said, well, our lunchrooms aren't really open until like noon, but there's a vending machine around the corner. I was like, oh, yeah, that's all I need is a vending machine. I said, well, I, I don't really have cash. She said, it's okay, it takes credit cards. And I said, oof, that's kind of cool, vending machine that takes credit cards. Maybe I should have known these things exist, but it's, now it's like normal. Ten years ago, nobody ever heard of this. So I went around the corner. I looked at the stuff that was available. It was amazing. So my eye fell on this this uh, can of tuna. It was called tuna salad snack, a bumblebee tuna salad snack. I thought, wow, that's cool. I think I'm going to take a, a fish out of the Atlantic Ocean and chop it up and mix it with pickles and stuff, stick it in the can, and then it lands in this little spot, and I just have to swipe my card for $1.50. So I was really excited about it. And so for a buck fifty, I went back to my room and started eating this delicious treat. And and it turned out that this it had uh, uh, not just tuna, uh, but but by the way, tuna tuna fishing turns out to be one of the most uh, dangerous jobs in the world. So you have to go out for weeks at a time and chase schools of these fish up and down the mm -hmm. coast, like from the Gulf of Mexico all the way up to New England, because uh, they I don't know they go back to the spawning grounds or something like that. So you have to be out in the boats for weeks and weeks. Uh, very, very dangerous, and and the fish themselves are uh, 300 to 1,000 pounds, so they're extremely difficult to catch, you know, and and and, and just like the amount of dedication that has to, has to go into just catching a freaking tuna is amazing. And then you take this this tuna back and you have to chop it up. And you've got to figure out a way to not salt it like they did. You know, in, in medieval times, it's all fish is salted because it's the only way you can preserve it. But you actually can it and put it in a can, which is kind of amazing. But the, the thing also included eggs, which is funny because, okay, so you got like a farmer with chickens over here in, I don't know, wherever it happens to be. Uh, I don't know, where do you, Ohio or Iowa, one of those strange Midwestern places, probably have a lot of chickens. And so they make eggs there and then they have to combine it. But then you've still got in the can, you've got salt, which is fascinating because salt in the Middle Ages was money. Now we don't think anything about salt. Now salt's <laughs> everywhere you can get salt. It's like, you know, oh, it used to be money, but now it's like, pfft, who cares about salt? Well, salt's actually a big deal and actually difficult. It used to be the world's most valuable good. But beyond that, there's carrots, and carrots we know about, but celery. And it turns out celery is extremely difficult to grow because the seeds are really tiny, so they have to germinate in greenhouses and then be planted out in the open fields, and they can only be harvested by hand, actually. Jeez. So, yeah, so, so, uh, and a very delicate crop and only in certain places under certain weather conditions and so on. So anyway, I'm looking at this little stupid can, uh, and all these ingredients are combined from all these different industries all over the planet earth and they all come together in this one little can and then the canning technology itself. So steel, you know, and, and with a little peel top, cause I was panicked when I first opened it. I thought, well, I don't have a can opener. Oh, there's a lid with a little tiny lip on it. You just lift it up and it pulls off. So it's got this funny little glue in it. Oh, and then it came built in with a spoon and the spoon is Jeez. made out of plastic, which, you know, comes from, uh, uh, petroleum. So you're using like, you know, dinosaurs have been dead for tens of thousands of years, however long it is, extracting dead dinosaur stuff. And it's like, you know, and they're putting it in furnaces and pounding it into plastic and then making a tiny little spoon so I have something to eat with. And then it came with four crackers. So I'm imagining in Iowa wheat, wheat fields with grain blowing and they have to harvest the wheat and, and, then, and, then, and then chop it up and then bake it and then have these machines that stamp it into tiny little crackers also that I can get four little round things inside my little bumblebee tuna salad Thinks that I have something to eat, so I take my little petroleum spoon, <laughs> put it on my cracker, and eat eat this little treat made from fish in the ocean and chickens from God knows where, and difficult to grow celery and carrots, and oh, and then also uh, mayonnaise, which I mean I don't even want to go into that. So anyway, this, this whole thing is a miracle in a can, you know, and I paid for it with just this quick credit card, and and it cost me a dollar fifty. So that is an incredible thing. Uh, and yes, it is mystifying. Like, how does this happen without a planner? 
I mean, no dictator in the world said, let's have tuna salad cans available for everybody. <laughs> oh, and here's one more thing, Steve. All this stuff happens. And then it lands and it sits in its little pocket inside this little machine and it's just sitting there going, I hope Jeffrey comes along and buys me sometime. Because if he doesn't, all of this would have been a waste. But it's really up to him. You know, it's up to him. I hope he gets hungry this morning. <laughs> Otherwise, everything we've done has been a complete waste of time. <laughs> and then I make my decision and I give up $1.50. Unbelievable. Yes. So that is absolutely mystifying that people can't understand it. I, I, I totally get that such a thing could exist without a central planner is utterly mystifying. It does defy almost rationality in that way. It does. I mean, that's that is staggering. And there's so many pieces of the puzzle that are <laughs> left out there. Like you mentioned the mayonnaise, but even the machinery, this is like the eye pencil idea, even the machinery that makes the thing that extracts the oil and nobody knows what's going on. None of these the people boats. are communicating with one another. And the boats, I mean, it, the, the whole the thing is. <laughs> so so what is then your explanation for this? How? It, so that's the system in which we live, that this kind of coordination takes place right. without any central planner and communication and it results in a staggering amount incomprehensible amount of wealth in a tuna can and a vending machine so how do you oh, is is that is that well, a miracle I think, I think it has something to do with what hayek used to obsess about which is this magic of of the price because the the price can take all these disparate goods and all these different kinds of labors and over all many, many lands and everything else and kind of aggregate them into a single unit that also happens to become really helpful for accounting. So you can know if you're losing money or making money, which turns out to be a proxy for whether or not you're wasting your time or using your time well, all right? So yeah, so the price becomes this, this beautiful institution uh, uh, that, that makes this coordination possible, mm. which I know it's not, that's not, it's not the explanation you're looking for, because even then, it still begs the question, well, how is it that something like a price could, could uh, elicit such magic, you know, uh, and be the source of such beauty in the world? Um, and yeah, it's, it, is, it is a little mystifying. You know, Adam Smith himself referred to the invisible hand, which I think is a really interesting metaphor. But... Mm. It's not clear to the extent that I, I, it's not clear to me at all that Adam Smith meant by the invisible hand. He didn't mean he didn't mean God. Uh, he just meant he just meant that there was this coordinating mechanism that works out there that's so beyond our individual consciousness. Like as an as an individual, you can only be conscious of the thing you're doing right then, you know. Um, but you can't be conscious of everything else. You can only be conscious of yourself. So you need some institutions out there to extract that consciousness out of us hmm. and to and get us get us outside of our bodies and our own heads something to the first something that embodies more knowledge than we ourselves can carry around ourselves hmm. uh, that was i think hayek's essential essential uh point about what in the market institutions do become tools of communication essentially it also makes you think what are the other prices out there in the abstract what are these other unbelievably powerful coordination tools that we haven't even discovered yet. Oh, like, for sure. I mean, there's language, of course, but language is so proximate. There's Bitcoin, yeah. I mean. <laughs> yeah, there's Bitcoin, right? <laughs> of course, interest, interest rates are, are interesting themselves because interest rates sort of embody this even more abstract of, of the uh, uh, issue of our mm. scale of time, you know, like to what extent are we willing to wait for things versus having them now and then having this arbitrage take place between people who yeah. are willing to wait longer versus those who are wanting to, to have things much sooner. And they and through the interest rate, they can talk to each other in a funny way and make deals without constantly, uh, in a constant path of negotiation, you can just look at a single number and go, okay, that's worth it for me, that's worth it for me, let's go. So where do you see this going? So so we've got this system that's accelerating in this fantastic rate. Who knows what type, type of inventions around the corner that are just going to be more game changers. You're, when you look out 10,000 years in the future, what what is, the, what is the thing that we're, what is the system that we're living in? Do you think we're going to be, do, are, do you, are you persuaded by the, like the Silicon Valley people who are trying to make us immortal 
demigods? I mean, uh, not so much. You know, I I I I actually think I I can't believe I once wrote that that mortality is a fact of life, and I actually got pushed back from people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Probably from you, uh, which which shocked me. But I, I do think that mortality is just something where that's that's part of our condition. And yeah, I think we can extend it here and there. But I I actually don't believe in um, I don't know what what it is. You know, the transhumanism and all that kind of stuff. It's just not. I mean, to me, to me, the beauty of markets is that it basically brings prosperity to us. But it doesn't actually change any fundamental facts of human nature. Basically, you and I are the same as you know Cicero and Socrates. We're we're, we're made of the same stuff, so face, face the same moral dilemmas, and uh, you know our nature is, is not actually changed. This is one of the reasons I love the Jetsons, right? Because it's set way in the future, but they're just like us, except they just have more stuff. And here's <laughs> what's actually interesting about that too: is that and it's kind of an odd thing that that no matter how much wealth we get, how many gizmos we use, or how you know accessible information is, or how many miracles we're surrounded by, we're still still sort of weirdly unhappy. Mm-hmm. Like uh, you know, in the end, wealth doesn't actually bring you your, your happiness. I mean, like you, you keep striving for a better life, and then you get it, and then you're like, oof. Still more. I mean, you know, it doesn't finally address that inner spiritual problem that, that we will always face. And and I don't know. I I, I guess I, I I kind of have in my head an undemonstrable proposition of dualism. I do believe there's a difference between time and eternity, mm-hmm. and uh, and time is is always going to be uh, 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 as the old uh, medieval poets used to say, a lacrimale vale, a valley of tears. Mm. So. I was having a conversation. This reminds me of um, of a, with a gentleman who kind of took that idea that um, wealth is not really going to result in human happiness, and he mm. ran with it. And his argument was essentially: what brings happiness is community uh, relations, is love, is like things you can experience with the people around you. And sometimes there's a tension between the pursuit of wealth and the pursuit of the actual things that make you happy. And so he was saying, mm-hmm. well, therefore, I think actually there's too much wealth. I think we should go back to the, back to the state of nature, back to mm-hmm. pre-industrial civilization so that we can actually be happier. What do you think about that idea? Well, uh, yeah, people are always proposing this all the time. And one of the major objections to markets over the years is that they're not dramatic enough, that really what makes us happy is to engage in large-scale uh, dramatic endeavors that require, require heroism and killing and, and upheaval and uh, t- titanic historical shifts and war is perfectly suited for that. So, hmm. I mean, this was this was essentially, um, uh, you know, Thomas Carlyle, uh, his objection to Marcus is that it, it kind of like this world, of, you know, a, a world of, of equals trading with each other and and getting ever nicer pictures on the walls and and more more comfortable furniture strikes him as just being boring and mm. and it, it 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 actually wipes out greatness and that same critique was picked up um, a century later by by Carl Schmitt who who uh, the Nazi jurist who wrote I think the most powerful and interesting attack on liberalism in the 20th century in his his book the concept of the political he said the liberalism is a is a, a dreadful vision of society in which there's there's no hierarchies and and we do nothing but gain from each other's presence. Nobody wants that. Nobody, nobody wants to live like that. <laughs> you know, the the real essence of life is having enemies and killing them, and having friends and rallying around them and dying for them. You know. Well, what's your response? I don't know. I just don't think the Holocaust was such a good thing. I, I, I you know, I mean, that's literally my response to Carl Schmidt. I mean, his book came out <laughs> ten years before before uh, the Jews were rounded up and. And, and starved and, and gassed and 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 I just I look at those years of the war and you know I see coming out of it's it's actually creepy the way people call it the greatest generation that's actually a highly dangerous phrase because actually that was a terrible terrible World War II was a terrible trauma uh, for for all of civilization not you know the hundreds of millions of dead but beyond that just the just the the, the trauma and, and social life, like in the United States, I mean, the churches were shattered, families were broken up, uh, educations were ruined. Um, 
trusting each other was 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 uh, was ev evaporated. Our lives were planned. We had to face the the despot, and and uh, food was rationed, and and uh, speech was controlled. There were internment camps, and just it's like all the worst things you can ever imagine. So I'm looking at Carl Schmidt. I'm like, you know, is this the drama you want? Mm -hmm. is this, is it, you, the, you'd rather have this than 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 a baseball game and. Watching people drinking drinking Bud Light and, and eating hot dogs actually that's and watching baseball actually that's kind of a cool thing compared to this, the killing fields actually. I, I think that is. It, it seems self evident that that is uh, you know baseball games are preferable to Nazi Germany. However, in just in the past few years, my understanding of human psychology has changed. Because you asked the question, is this the drama you are looking for? And I would say, you know, there are, I have seen quite a lot of humans who might actually answer that in the affirmative, where it's like, oh, mm -hmm. at least at least it's fun. Like, mm -hmm. do you see the same thing? Am I just being a pessimist, or is that well, so, not actually uh, out there? I, I think it's actually, so some people have a, a taste for, for high-stakes gamery and, and uh, a wicked competitive struggles and stuff like that. And uh, I think actually the capitalist marketplace provides that for some people. You know, there's 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 various levels of risk aversion in the population. Some people are just really interested in building huge skyscrapers and uh, and, uh, and 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 bridges and inventing uh, rockets and 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 disrupting everything. And and I think I think capitalism provides a, a place for them and and channels their energies in a way that's socially productive. Mm -hmm. You know, it forces them to behave in a, a more or less voluntary way. Um, uh, this is, I think, actually one of the fascinating things that I find Ayn Rand's own work is that she took this sort of Nietzschean vision of uh, of, of struggle, mi mighty, courageous, heroic uh, struggles where you can barely sleep at night and you get up and you crush your enemies and all this kind of stuff, and embedded that whole vision within a capitalist framework mm. and actually made it interesting, you know, and I, I think that that is. So I think capitalism provides opportunities for, for all kind of temperaments. And mm. yeah, if you've got a warlike spirit, spirit, I don't know, go to work for Goldman Sachs. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Just don't, which is actually one of the reasons I was, I was so unhappy. I mean, Donald Trump was not so good as a businessman in the sense that he sort of, he, he lacked morality, which, um, which is okay so long as you don't have a state or he was constantly using like imminent domain and, mm. and exploiting political uh, favoritism and stuff like that. It was really bad. But he's the worst possible person to be president in that sense because um, he uses that, that Nietzschean spirit that he has embedded mm. him in sort of absence of morality. Now he's in control of the, of, of, uh, the machinery of compulsion and coercion in the world's most powerful government. I, I, don't, I don't think it's very good. So that I have two questions on that. One is, for those of us who don't have, who, who aren't dominated by that spirit of... Conquest. Of conquest, yeah. I mean, it's there. I definitely have it. Maybe, maybe that's like being a man and being testosterone is you've got some of that, that ancient wiring back there. But it's something I'm not a particularly big fan of. Um, if I see that, and I think a lot of people are like that. We see it in the world. What to do? What to do in a world in which large parts of the population don't want that, and and maybe large parts of the population do, and maybe even larger parts that uh, we might be comfortable thinking exist. I think there are quite a lot of people out there deeply unhappy with their state of existence, deeply unhappy with the culture at large, and sure. would be totally fine with taking up arms being like, all right, time to clear out the... The, the dead wood and yeah well violent. it's so true it's so true and I, I actually I think that you know because we still live in the age of the total state this is actually generating a tremendous amount of social and cultural frustration hmm. I mean people perceive that there's something wrong out there and and they don't know entirely what it is and oddly people rarely just name the enemy you know the, the state Albert J. Nock wrote this great book called Our Enemy the State right and uh, and his point was essentially you can talk all you want about you know all the terrible things in the world, but most of them are the spawn of 
the state. And, mm -hmm. and I think it's interesting that people don't talk like this. Like the left wants to say, oh, well, the problem is white people, you know, uh, or whatever. I don't know what they say, or heterosexuality or something. And then the right wing wants to say that the problem is, is diversity, lack of homogeneity or, or atheism or something like this. And, and, and nobody really wants to talk about the real problem. Yeah. I mean, the question is, what kind of social system can we put together, can we cobble together that can take heterogeneous elements uh, of all of society with various kinds of uh, things and, and, and put them all into the same pot and cause them to benefit from each other's presence? You know, what is that system? And I think that system is liberalism. And that, to me, that's a great discovery. It was, a, it was an amazing discovery. It came out of liberalism after the, the end of the religious wars. Because, you know, before the Protestant Reformation, people just couldn't even imagine that a social structure could, uh, be, could uh, not be managed from the top down with a single religious faith. I mean, mm -hmm. religion is the most important thing in the world. Clearly, we need to have one religion. Yeah, okay, 50, 100 years of war and killings people finally woke up and said, you know, there's got to be a better way, you know? So, okay, so to part two of the question mm -hmm. is what if there's a third alternative? So on the one hand, we have liberalism, capital, capitalism, wealth development, individualism. On the other hand, we have fascism, and we, we have uh, the, the desire for conquest and remaking the world in your image. What if there's another option, which is something like issue it all, and why don't we like live out on a little farm somewhere in our well, little you're communities? Saying, you're starting to see this this yeah. this 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 way of thinking uh, emerge on both the left and the right, like uh, this book called The Benedict Way, I think, uh, by I don't know one of these guys who writes for the Federalist, who's sort of a, a you can Google the, the title, but it's kind of a right wing urge for. Uh, a kind of radical cultural secession, like, oh, the whole world's corrupt, we need to retreat to our mm -hmm. own ways. And and I guess my answer to that is that liberalism is tolerant of that perspective. Like, that, you, as long as it's not forced, I really don't, I don't really have a problem. It's, it's not a problem. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I also work in New England because I work for the American Institute for Economic uh, Research. And there's a kind of, there's, a, there's also the secessionist mentality among the progressive left, too. You know, and they they want to have their own labor currency and all that kind of stuff, and um, and they want to have their own organic farms. And I don't know, liberalism is tolerant of that kind of stuff. And to me, to me, to live in tribes is the natural state of of humanity. You know, it's the markets that are the exception that they bring us together. Hmm. So the last question I have for you is on this topic, and. What I, what, when I look back on my own personal political progression and my understanding of economics and my understanding of humans, there was lacking a particular dimension, which a lot of other ideas latch onto and then I think a lot of people are drawn to, which is what you could call the spiritual dimension. I don't know a better term for it. it it's the, the dimension which is about your quality of life and like the choices, your freedom of making choices that you want to make and achieving of your own personal values in the context of like your really big picture uh, beliefs. And my own progression through libertarianism, liberalism is it was kind of lacking that it was it was like one step too abstract it was like okay well we'll just let people achieve their own ends and that's it and nothing more and there's no mm -hmm. commentary about what actually might make humans happy and what actually might not like if you're if you're a libertarian let's say you're a capitalist materialist and you think that just oh, just the production the yeah 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 i no i get what you're saying um Mises addresses this question in uh, Socialism and, he's, and, and, and his book Liberalism, 1922 and 1927, respectively. And he's a little dismissive of it. He's like, okay, people say that liberalism lacks spirituality. Well, it doesn't address the topic of spirituality. That's for you to discover on your own. Mm -hmm. I think I may be a little dismissive about it. Let me just make two additional points about that. Uh, the second one is that I have noticed an interesting trend in the liberty movement, such as it is, over the last 10 years. Like 10 years ago, people were obsessed with politics. And they would, you would go to these conferences and they'd say, the state is evil, this is what needs to be done, this is the right kind of policies we need to have, and we need to look for politicians to give, give them to us, and all this kind of stuff. It's like every talk was about politics. Now you go to a typical liberty event, like I just got back from Libertopia in San Diego, the entire conference was about 
on one hand, blockchain technology, which I think has a mystical capacity to bring people together, which is something we could talk about. And tear uh, them apart, too. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, the, the crypto, the Twitter wars, and crypto land are kind of be rather vicious for sure. Um, and then the second thing is spirituality. Like a, a, a tremendous number of talks were about spirituality. I, I think it, like look at somebody like Jordan Peterson. I mean, he, you know, he first became kind of famous for his his political statements concerning Canada's uh, anti discrimination law over uh, trans transsexual uh, gender identity. But then he took his fame and turned it into, he's become a kind of self-help counselor, like his latest book, 12 Rules. It's all these things about, about how to live as a better person with, mm -hmm. with more dignity, you know. And I think people are really interested in that. Mm -hmm. And, I, yeah, I think it, it is related to, to, to liberalism more than Mises wants to acknowledge. And I, I only think back to the, like the parables of Jesus, for example. I mean, the parables were the core of his teaching mission, right? I mean, that was the very core of what he did. He told really cool Jewish stories with, with fascinating, weird endings. But, but vast numbers of them were about commercial life, you know? The, the, the wheat farmer with the silos, uh, the, the guy with, the, with the, the, the grape farm, you know, who invites all the various workers in. The guy with the treasure in the field sells his, his house. You know, there's a builder who builds his, his one house on, on stone and the other on sand, and, and the, the parable of the talents. I mean, you could just go through them. I think there are probably like 30 of them. A vast number of them deal with commercial, with the commercial, our commercial lives, you know? And so there, there is this, like Jesus knew it, this, like, reflecting on, on commercial lives, on our commercial lives and, and our uh, place of ourselves and within markets. Is, is a kind of a window, becomes a window through which we can kind of understand, understand ourselves better mm. and morality uh, better. And, and they are linked very much. I think there's a lot of overlap there. So for you personally, um, what is your, where, where are your ideas on the topic of like personal satisfaction? So when you're, you, I know you have an appreciation for canned tuna salad. It yeah, yeah. you a joy and this is something i'm not sorted out i'm not exact i think i have a I, I think it has i think the good life has maybe a one-to-one -one correspondence with the amount of love in your life love is a big one but for you what what is what are those big picture spiritual things what are you trying to accomplish and and, and why well it's, of course it's, it's different for everybody i i tend to perceive myself as uh, like every I, I tend to think of every day as a gift that I've been given and something I, I want to use to its highest possible value you know and it's a little bit of a problem I have that I, I panic if I'm not doing that I'm like mm. ah, I've been given this extra day and I didn't build anything beautiful with it I didn't really achieve value with it but that's just this is my own perspective. Like I actually believe in the capacity of human human beings to work to make the world a better place. Not a perfect place, but just slightly better. And that's what excites me. That's what thrills me. That's what I that I'm what I'm super, super interested in. And so that's personally what drives me forward. I mean, just like making valuable things and seeing other people being made happy and therefore perceiving myself to have made my time on earth worth it. Like mm -hmm. I really, I want to, uh, I want, I want to like, if there's a God, I want him or her to be happy that he or she gave me every minute that I was given. You and know? you made something beautiful with that time. Yeah. But I just make a slight difference. You know, like I said, I tend to perceive the world as like the, the Valley of Tear, the Lacromalum Valley. Mm. And, and just like, just a few less tears, you know, at the end of my life. I think, I think, I think that would make it really nice. And and the way I stay inspired is by looking at the seeming randomness of of human interaction and how it like mysteriously becomes orderly. I'm, I I never stop being fascinated by that. But just this whole lesson of how the absence of control is the way that we can create order in the world. Like that that one observation is so fascinating to me because it's so counterintuitive that I look for that every single day mm. and I'm, I'm fascinated by it I'm, I'm truly I'm obsessed with that I mean like I remember being going out to lunch with some friends 
uh, a few months ago, and we were all sitting in a single room, and uh, we, we needed to get out the door, go down the hall, go out the door, go across the street and enter another door to the restaurant, and then line up to order our food. And I began to, so before we got up, I thought, I wonder how this is going to happen. Uh, so we all got up, and we can't all go through the door at the same time, right? So we had to figure out, like, really quickly, a, a quick system for, for making <laughs> this possible, you know? And so sure enough, one person held the door, and it was like, after you, after you, after you, after you. And we all, yeah, and so on it went. So there's these little signaling systems that were constantly at work, and we didn't have to actually talk about them or even be particularly conscious about them. We just all developed kind of like these rules of thumb mm -hmm. to make our lives better. And it's really interesting because you're not going to, like, that, just that operation was mighty and difficult and miraculous, like getting from here to there, ordering and coming back again. You won't find anything in the Federal Register about this. You know, there's, there's, Congress didn't explain how to do it. We don't have any bureaucrats running it. It could have gone wrong, but it didn't. And so that, that weird capacity of human beings to organize their lives without direction, I think is, it's, it's just a great source of joy for me just to, to take notice of it. And it's actually a, a real distraction for me, I must say. I'm constantly <laughs> thinking about this, yeah. Well, that's a beautiful note to end on. I, I appreciate um, you talking about that and talking about some, some pretty personal things. You know, I, I find it interesting to just ask people these types of questions because everybody's got some little different insight. And it's not something that most people are discussing. And it's like, well, hang on. We're all humans here. It seems like we yeah. would all try to sort all of these things out. So thank you. It is, it is fascinating. And, and, and again, I mean, this is why I think liberalism is, is such an important important umbrella idea it's like a like a big philosophy of the material world mm -hmm. because it, because once you understand it then you kind of lose your interest in weird plans and schemes and and political wars and and all the things that are so ugly and 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 bring you down and make you depressed uh liberalism i do think is a can be a source of uh, personal psychological and spiritual happiness for us all all right jeff tucker thanks very much okay thank you my friend